Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Good morning, David. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. It's great to have you here. Morning, Sarah. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So we had a uh, we've had a couple of conversations offline. I'm yes. quite interested to hear your kind of views because we're talking today about the M and A market, what's going on if you want to sell, what you need to do, uh, and I think you've got a world of advice for those listening who are possibly thinking about well, uh, that so. being their next move. Do you want to introduce yourself and, and, and Leslie James Acquisitions, what you do, etc.? Yes, of course. Uh, I'm the, the founder and managing director of Leslie James Acquisitions. Uh, we are uh, an M&A mergers and acquisitions business solely within the insurance sector, um, which is my background. I'm 41 years uh, in the insurance sector, uh, originally for a number of years as a registered insurance broker for my sins. Um, with uh, the likes of Cedric, as was, uh, and uh, many years uh, thereafter, um, including extensively with uh, acquisitions. Uh, so, essentially, we are an introducer rather than a corporate advisory firm, um, and we introduce vendors uh, to a very wide range of, uh, of UK acquirers, and that's vendors uh, across the UK uh, and also in Ireland. What I'm interested in, and I'm going to give you a really broad question here, sure. what is happening in the M&A market and what do you predict? The reasoning behind the question is, you know, the rhetoric of how many brokers are left, you know, the, 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 the pool is getting smaller, yes. must mean it's a, a seller's market. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I think it is by definition a seller's market because, as you've alluded to, there is a, an increasing dearth uh, of, uh, of brokers who have not been sold, uh, both to the consolidators, uh, you know, the Asinarchs, GRPs, uh, etc. of the world, um, but also uh, independent. So, so there is a diminishing pool, albeit that there are and have been and continue to be uh, a number of new startups. Um, some of whom go down the AR route, uh, but, but some of whom are brave enough to be um, under their own steam. Um, so, yes, uh, there are a host of acquirers who are all uh, fishing in the same pond, so to speak. Um, but I think what's important is that if a vendor considers an exit, by way of a sale, uh, whether that's a, a full sale or possibly a, a minority or a majority sale, uh, they're able to access um, as many options as possible. So, you know, without blowing our own trumpet, I appreciate that uh, brokers are uh, approached almost daily uh, by individual acquirers. Um, but our advantage, other than the fact that our service is completely free to vendors, uh, is that we have very much a, an overview. Uh, so that when, uh, when we're instructed by a vendor, uh, we're able in strict confidence to, uh, 
to make approaches to a whole range of acquirers who are relevant to that profile of business, um, thereby obtaining uh, a range of valuations, offers, uh, so that there is, is true choice. Uh, we are very much, in inverted commas, a broker in that sense. Uh, and rather than a vendor dealing with uh, one direct approach from one particular acquirer, um, we can spread that field uh, quite far and wide. Can you talk me through the process as it works with you guys? So I'm an insurance broker. I'm yes. considering an exit through uh, selling my business. Sure. What do I do? And what are the hoops that I need to jump through? Well, uh, in terms of uh, dealing with us, I can only talk about dealing with us. Um, then it's a question of uh, making an approach to us. Uh, we will undertake a, a high level or headline fact find, uh, which is relevant specifically to this sector. Um, and uh, following that fact find and um, us being provided with last three years accounts, so on and so forth, uh, we will then put together a presentation for acquirers. Uh, we'll make initial approaches by email, which will be headline emails which are fully anonymized uh, so that there's, there's no possibility of, of the vendor being um, identified. Um, then when acquirers uh, express an interest, they're asked to sign a fully binding non-disclosure agreement, NDA, uh, and it's only at that point that we then provide them with full details. Our service is very much cradle to grave. So from the initial inquiry all the way through to uh, hopefully a completion of a sale, uh, we are there to, to liaise between buyer and seller, uh, handhold through the process uh, and uh, ensure a smooth transaction, which I think is also very important. You asked me uh, what vendors should be doing. Essentially, I think you're asking me what they should be doing to gear up for a sale. And I think there are a few fundamental points um, that should, if at all possible, be addressed. Um, the first would be to, uh, to have succession management in place, management or succession management in place. It's an important for, it is important for an acquirer, for the business that they're acquiring to be able to continue uh, successfully and smoothly. And whilst, of course, in many cases, they will have their own people to insert into a business, um, the management that's already in place has existing relationships with staff, uh, with clients, with insurers, so on and so forth. So that's always the, the optimal um, solution. Um, in terms of other things which a, a vendor can do, I think most of all, and I'm sure we'll come on to the point of valuation, but most of all, it really is about being realistic. Uh, you know, a lot of figures are banded around in the market. Uh, in the last two years, for example, we've sold 25 brokers of varying sizes from uh, a couple of hundred thousand income up to valuations approaching 50 million. Um, so, you know, we do have a very solid overview uh, and understanding of what valuations are currently. I think it's important for vendors to be able to, to be sufficiently open-minded and realistic uh, as regards expectations. 
you've mentioned sometimes that the acquirer will insert their own people. And I know that's a worry for a lot of vendors who, you know, their staff are their family. Right, okay. Um, well, firstly, in terms of the acquirer inserting their own people, what generally tends to happen, uh, certainly through an, an earn-out period, which may extend to two years, three years, um, the, the vendor will be required to remain within the business, uh, either on a full-time basis, alternatively on a part-time or consultancy basis or an ad hoc basis. There are many different versions of this. Um, so the vendor will remain, the, the management will remain. Uh, the insertion by an acquirer of management tends to be from an, from an oversight standpoint. So rather than inserting someone in a day-to-day -day management uh, function, uh, it will more be for an oversight. Yes. Uh, when I was talking to Tim, what one of the things he was saying is the people element, the brand element, yeah. the, the community yeah. element, as it were, is yes. very important to the valuation. Can you tell me if that's still uh, the, the case yeah. and, and how that works in terms of valuations? Yeah, you know, very much so. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that that's the case with any service business in any service sector. Uh, not just insurance, but the extent of, for example, accountancy or, or the law. Um, people are, are very important, uh, particularly client-facing people within a business, because to disrupt those relationships between those people and the clients uh, can have an adverse effect. Um, equally, brand is, is very important. Uh, most acquirers recognize the importance of brand Consequently, most acquirers will not seek to change uh, the name and branding uh, of an acquisition, certainly not for a good number of years. Um, it's a very important aspect. This is going off topic slightly, but in terms of brand, how do you measure the brand value of a vendor? Well, brand is all part of goodwill, which essentially is what is being acquired by an acquirer. Um, you know, all sales are goodwill sales. They're, they're not the acquisitions of, of factories with plant and, and machinery. Um, so the, 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 the value of the brand uh, inherently relates to uh, its image, um, its quality, um, its professionalism. Uh, all of these sorts of things will, will add up to the value of the brand. Uh, and the more well-known a brand, uh, and the more well-known a brand for quality, customer service, and so on, um, will increase the appetite of an acquirer. Uh, and inevitably, increased appetite will lead to an increase in valuation. Um, on the valuation front, yes. Um, you hear people talking about multiples, you hear uh, people talking about EBITDA. Uh, there's a whole range of ways that people think that their um, business ought to be valued. Can you give yes. us an indication of what's in the inquirer's mind and how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, to, to make this as simplified as possible, because otherwise I'll, I'll speak for the next half an hour on this. Um, but essentially uh, a, a small business um, and I, I would find that as a business with um, income up to around a million pounds 
uh, or perhaps EBITDA, and, and let's just explain what that is. Um, EBITDA can be a very complicated concept, but in the context of insurance broking, uh, what it really boils down to is pre-tax operating profit. Uh, in simple terms, income, less expenses. Uh, and of course, uh, there is unadjusted EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA. Very simply, adjusted EBITDA is what evaluation will be based on, and the adjustments will be the likes of um, directors' lifestyle expenses, uh, which are not really attributed to the business, but appear on the P&L, travel and entertaining, for example, um, directors' cars, so on and so forth. Also other areas of possible duplication, such as finance uh, and compliance. So to come back to the nub of the question, for businesses, generally speaking, with turnovers of up to around a million pounds, and that's income, that's not GWP, that's broker earnings, uh, they will tend to be valued on a multiple of turnover, a multiple of income. Larger businesses, businesses with uh, an EBITDA operating profit of at least around half a million pounds uh, and uh, incomes into the several millions of pounds uh, would almost always be valued uh, by a multiple of adjusted EBITDA. You're going to ask me, I'm sure, about the uh, the range <laughs> in multiples. Which the range of multiples. Is... We've all heard the, the 20 times multiples. Yeah, <laughs> Is that realistic in a post-COVID sure. world? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you know, Sarah, there are a lot of fairy tales out there um, and people who, who are quite unqualified and like to bandy around uh, figures uh, which are really unattainable um, and do nothing to manage the expectations of vendors. So in the real world, and if I just look at the 25 uh, acquisitions that we've succeeded with uh, in the last two years, you are generally, for a, a predominantly commercial broking business, um, a smaller commercial broking business, looking at income multiples as somewhere between roughly two and two and a half times. In some cases, that will be exceeded up to perhaps around three times. Private medical healthcare brokers is an interesting example because they have tended to go for higher multiples uh, of around three and a quarter times as a, as a ballpark uh, of income. Personal lines uh, oriented brokers, uh, the multiple does tend to be uh, rather lower, somewhere very roughly between one and a half and two times income. Um, but these are very much ballparks. Uh, and I've, I've if seen... If we're talking... Just, just to say, I, I've seen uh, those who sold for less than those multiples. I've seen others who have sold for more. There have been a couple of examples, for example, of commercial brokers where acquirers have chased up valuations uh, where they've come in initially at around two and a half times. Uh, in, and in a couple of instances, they've ended up at 3.5, 3.7 times income. But it's very much the exception. But what is it about those brokers that has got the higher multiples? Are they a niche? Are they 
national? Are they do they have higher than usual operating profit? What is it about those yes. uh, brokers that? So with the smaller brokers, uh, where there tends to be an income multiple attributed uh, to to arrive at a valuation. Even with those smaller brokers, the underlying EBITDA is very important. So uh, in terms of EBITDA, the, the, the profit margin, the sustainable post-acquisition profit margin uh, of, a, a, of a vendor um, will be what a valuation is dependent upon. So to give you an example, uh, quite recently, uh, one of the brokers I sold uh, was extremely popular in terms of acquirer appetite and fundamentally valuation boils down to acquirer appetite. If you were to go to Sotheby's or Christie's uh, with your valuable um, bidder appetite uh, would be uh, valuation rather or offers would be dependent on that appetite. It works in a very similar way uh, with this. So in this one example, um, I had a broker, a commercial broker, uh, with a, a profit margin of an almost completely unheard of 60-60%. And that was a wholly sustainable profit margin. So, as you can imagine, uh, acquirer appetite was extremely strong. Um, there were five or six offers. Uh, ultimately, the, the acquirer, uh, sorry, the vendor, went with the highest offer, not just for monetary reasons, but also because there was a very good fit and a, a sharing of culture and vision and so on. Uh, and that was an EBITDA multiple of eight times. So this is to give another idea uh, of valuations. So in terms of EBITDA, uh, a commercial broker will tend to go for somewhere between around six and eight times EBITDA. Of course, there are exceptions. Um, you've mentioned uh, the word niche. Certain niche businesses will be particularly highly valued, uh, as will, as I said, businesses with high sustainable profit margins, uh, businesses which are perhaps corporate rather than commercial. Um, it's, it's really it's about acquirer appetite, which leads to valuation levels. So I have a question on that. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to get the conflict right in my head. So it's very much a, a seller's market, but it's down to acquirer's appetite. So yes. what what does that mean? Well, essentially what it means is it's very simple. Uh, if you have an attractive business, uh, acquirers will, there will be more appetite from acquirers, uh, more acquirers who, who will be prepared to bid for the business. Um, and that in itself can lead to a bit of a, a barging match, uh, a bit of competition. Um, I hate to use the word the term Dutch auction, but it does actually come into it, uh, leading to higher valuations. But you know, equally, some businesses have, have fallen by the wayside in terms of acquirer attractiveness and appetite um, because their profit margins are very low. Uh, after all, an acquirer has to be able to make an acquisition, go on to break even, recoup their investment, and then uh, make money. Um, 
some businesses will be uh, overloaded with unnecessary costly staff, wage roll, for example. Um, so it's, it's a very simple correlation, really, between uh, the, the attractiveness and good fundamentals of a business and the appetite of acquirers. Geography, just to mention, is also another factor uh, because, you know, like it or not, if we have a, a vendor in the Outer Hebrides, um, there will be a, less of an appetite because there's less availability of acquirers. Okay, no, that's really helpful. Here's a, a, um, a question for you that might be in people's minds, um, and I hope you don't mind me asking. Sure. So you have a panel of acquirers. Yes. How do you show your independence so that you are working for and with the vendor when it's essentially the acquirers that are paying the bills, if that makes sense? Okay, so uh, the answer actually, um, which you might be surprised at, uh, is... We don't. The reason why we don't, I go back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is that we are non-advisory. Uh, therefore, we don't take a stand uh, with the vendor. We don't take a stand with the acquirer. We are simply uh, in the middle as an introducer. Um, however, our reputation is uh, established and based on our ability to not to take sides, so to speak, and to be able to mediate, to be able to liaise. Uh, so our function uh, and, our, and our core mission, essentially, um, is to represent both vendor and acquirer. And, and, and we, we do that very successfully. And, you know, it's through a process, really, of honesty and transparency. Um, I've been in the sector for 41 years. Uh, reputation is everything. Um, so, you know, we are, we are seen, and it's very important for us to be seen as impartial. We will represent the interests of vendors. We will represent the interests of acquirers. Um, but it's about being impartial, and it's about both parties being reasonable. Uh, and sometimes, of course, that reasonableness has to be imposed on them <laughs> with some of... Uh, my influence but that's essentially how we work we work in an fabulous, even handed fabulous way answer. okay i love it um okay last question um could you could you give me an idea of the process so acquirer vendor matched let's do this what happens with the legals the due diligence the time scales how, how does that what what what's an expectation for yeah, the vendor on, on this? Absolutely, sort of stuff? I did just want to touch upon uh, one question you asked earlier, which was about uh, our panel of acquirers. Uh, and 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 to be clear about this, first and foremost, uh, we will be we are very careful with our vendors to ensure that they are asked the question: Is there any potential acquirer we should not approach? After all, you know, one doesn't know if uh, if a vendor has sometime in the past perhaps fallen out with a, an acquirer on the golf course or, or, or similar. We're not to know this. So we're, we're very careful to ensure that we only approach acquirers uh, who the vendor is happy for us to approach. In terms of our panel of acquirers, of course, uh, the, the, and the point is that I've been fortunate to build relationships with 
you know, the CEOs, chairman, MDs, and so on of, of the very largest and the, the medium-sized firms uh, in the industry over many decades. So, uh, yes, of course, we do deal with what some might term the usual suspects, the very large consolidators, um, but we also deal with um, a wide range of independent acquirers, regional independent acquirers, um, and many who are somewhat further under the radar. But we have key criteria here in terms of the acquirers we will deal with. Um, and and, and they, they're broadly speaking, two or threefold. Firstly, trust. Uh, we have to, to, to be able to trust them uh, in terms of their honesty and their transparency. Secondly, resources. We have to be sure that they have sufficient resources uh, themselves to be able to fund acquisitions. Not that they're going to have to go to the bank because that really tends not to work. Um, and the, the third and, and key criterion um, is uh, M&A experience. Because the, the acquisition process is not straightforward, you know, this is not buying a car. Um, our acquirers on our panel have to be seen to have sufficient experience of uh, acquisitions, including due diligence and legal process. And that comes on to your question. So where we are fortunate to, to obtain a number of offers, which is typical um, for a good vendor, um, the, the vendor will decide on uh, which offer they wish to accept. Um, the acquirer will then issue what's known as heads of terms, which is essentially an offer letter, uh, which headlines and outlines the details of the offer. At that point, the, the vendor will decide to instruct a, a lawyer, hopefully a dedicated M&A lawyer, hopefully not their local um, probate or conveyancing lawyer, who doesn't have this specialist experience. That's very important. Um, I, I would you, that's give, from experience, isn't it? Oh, very much. <laughs> and, I, and I would give a, a little plug here because we do have uh, our own panel of two specific dedicated M&A lawyers um, who we know do a, please pardon me, bloody good job. Um, and, you know, that's very important uh, to, to get things right, uh, to, to cover all the bases, and also in terms of speed. So once we get into the legal process, or once the acquirer and the vendor get into the legal process, the, the lawyers get together. Um, the acquirer separately starts their process known as due diligence, which is essentially going through the books uh, of the vendor to make sure that, that everything is in order. Uh, that's a simplified version. Um, that's usually quite extensive by way of questionnaires, etc. Um, and as I say, the, the lawyers will get together to produce what's known as either a share purchase agreement or otherwise an asset um, purchase agreement. And I might just mention, because this will be very important uh, for vendors, there are two types of sale, essentially. One is a share purchase or a share sale. Uh, where the company and its shares are being bought. So the shareholders are selling their shares to the acquirer. Uh, the other is uh, an asset often referred to as a book sale, where the vendor is essentially selling their book of business, possibly also their, their premises leasehold or freehold, uh, plus their staff. The two very different forms of sale, uh, book and asset purchases are 
much faster in completing. Share purchases are a little longer and more arduous. Um, but there are key differences in terms of capital gains tax liability. Again, we have a chartered tax advisor that we can refer for free consultations on this uh, subject. Um, but to, to, to go back to your, your question, um, the, the legals are, the agreements are ultimately agreed between the parties. And then similar to a house purchase, there is an exchange, there is a completion. I think the important part of this is the, the structure of agreements, the structure of payments. So typically, and there are exceptions, but typically um, a purchase will be based on an earnout. Uh, that is to say, uh, payments will be structured over somewhere between 12 months and three years with a, a lump sum, which is the majority uh, part, upfront at completion, and then uh, stages after 12 months or if it goes on to further, 24, possibly 36 months. Typical example would be 60-20-20, of completion. 20% 12 months after that, 20% 12 months after that gives a two-year earnout. Okay, um, the initial payment would not be subject to any clawback, but the uh, additional payments would normally be subject to clawback, but only if the revenue falls below what it currently is. There are also and is the reverse true? There can be additional payments that, if the revenue increases. That's what I was coming to say because that's a very important point because. Uh, Growth elements, or in acquisitions, what's termed the upside, uh, can be built into the agreement, and often will be built into the agreement, where the acquire, where the vendor will benefit from growth in that book through the period of the earnout. There are also other very interesting arrangements um, where where there's what's known as rolling in of equity. So uh, the vendor will sell to the acquirer 100%. Uh, the acquirer will permit the vendor to reinvest usually 10 or 15% of those proceeds into the acquirer's equity, buying shares in the acquirer. That can often, over say a five-year period, be worth six or 700% of its original value. And then when you look at the whole, the 100% valuation at the point of sale, with that additional growth in, say, five years' time, the original 100% valuation is actually worth maybe 160%. So it's actually a very good way to increase, if you like, the pension, which is the sale. Younger vendors, Absolutely. and this is one other very important point, which I'm sure your, your viewers, uh, your listeners will want to know. Um, younger vendors, vendors in perhaps their late 40s or their early 50s, who are looking to continue to work, looking to take money off the table by selling their business, but they are looking to continue to work, will often have the opportunity of working in a meaningful managerial role with the acquirer for the next five, ten years, uh, and, and all of the benefits that, that go along with that. 
like you said at the beginning, it is, it's not buying a car. No. It's a really, really complicated process. <laughs> and, and through the work you know, I've been doing, the conversations I've been having, I learn a little bit more sure. every week about the M&A process. Uh, as so, do I, Sarah. So, no, I, I, it's, yeah. yeah. Do you know what? You never stop learning. No. I love that saying. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you, uh, right. David. Really enjoyed it. I've, and I've learned quite a lot. So, so thank you. Um, are you happy that I put your details in the show notes so anybody listening that wanted to um, get in contact and ask you a couple of questions can? Yes, absolutely. Um, you have my uh, office and mobile numbers, my email address, and, of course, um, the website. But Leslie James, L-E-S-L-I-E, not L-E-Y, Leslie James Acquisitions. Uh, have a look on Google, and uh, there's a lot of information there, including... FAQs, uh, which cover many of these topics. Thank you, Sarah. Super. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.